Hello, Campus Cronies, and welcome back to Campus Crime Chronicles. I'm your host, Nicole Turner, former college professor, current college administrator, but always a true crime addict. In every episode of this podcast, I take a deep dive into some sort of true crime that occurred on a school campus or a crime that's associated with a college or university in some way. For each episode, I rate the seriousness of the crime from one to five on my very own serious crime scale, with one being completely not serious, possibly even a little humorous from time to time, to five being very serious. This episode is rated a four. Okay, y'all, you know how there is that one true crime story, that one case that you've heard over and over again, and each time you hear it, it intrigues you more and more, and you just can't shake it off. You have to know all the whys and hows, but when the case is cold and there are no answers to those whys and hows, the case still has you lying awake at night. I know you guys know exactly what I'm talking about, and I'm sure you all have at least one that baffles you and bothers the heck out of you at the same time. Well, like all true crime addicts, true crime crime junkies, whatever you want to call us in the true crime community, I am particularly haunted by what could have possibly happened to missing Ohio State University student Brian Schaefer. Now, I'm sure you've heard about this case before, probably from several different true crime podcasts or TV shows or documentaries, but I just had to do my part by telling Brian's story on my podcast as well, because after all, he was a college student and that is what my podcast is all about. So I I knew eventually I would cover this case and eventually is now for Chronicle 25. This episode is titled, Where Is He? The Disappearance of Brian Schaefer. So without further ado, let's get started. Part of what makes this case so interesting to me and what really makes my head spin is how does a person walk into a bar but then never come out of that same establishment? How does a person, literally and logically speaking, walk into some place and then just disappear into thin air? Because that's what seems to have happened in the disappearance of 27-year-old Brian Schaefer. Now, I'm going to be upfront and honest with you because this case has been covered by numerous podcasts and documentaries and news media. So that also means that there's quite a bit of conflicting information out there. So I'm going to do my best by telling you straight facts that I've been able to verify. However, throughout the episode, when I do present information that is simply speculated or theory rather than factual, I'll be sure to let you know and give you a heads up as I'm going through it. Because there are definitely a lot of theories that have been circulating in this case. And rightfully so, because people just want answers. So now that I've thrown that little discretionary portion out there, on we go. Brian grew up in Pickerington, Ohio, a suburb about 25 minutes outside of Columbus, which is where Ohio State University is located. Brian's father, Randy, was an electrician and his mother, Renee, was a nurse. Brian also has one brother, Derek, who is three years younger than him. Randy described Brian as someone who enjoyed sports and excelled in academics. In high school, Brian was a tennis star and some even thought that he'd go on 
to be a semi-pro tennis player. However, Randy said, Brian was inspired by his mother, where he gained a love of medicine and ultimately chose to pursue medical school to eventually become a doctor. In the spring of 2006, Brian was in the middle of his second year as a medical student at Ohio State. NBC News reported that Brian seemed to have everything going well for him. He was good-looking, with good grades, and a good relationship with his girlfriend, Alexis Wagoner. Brian met her in medical school, and the two seemed to genuinely adore each other. Alexis told NBC News that he was the one, saying, quote, pretty much since day one, I really thought of him as kind of the love of my life. However, something happened in March of 2006 that rocked Brian's world to its core. His mother, whom he was incredibly close to, lost a battle to cancer and passed away. Though Brian took it hard and was obviously devastated, he almost seemed more concerned about his father and how his father was handling everything. After all, his parents had been married for nearly 29 years and Brian just wanted to be there to support his father. So let's fast forward to about three weeks after his mother's passing. It was Friday, March 31st, 2006. It was the final day of classes and exams before spring break the following week. So you can probably imagine how anticipated and welcomed that vacation was for all the Ohio State students. So to kick off spring break right, Brian had plans to meet up with some friends or at least one friend that we for sure know of for some drinks. However, keep in mind, Brian and his family were still in the very early stages of grief. I mean, three or four weeks is not a long time since losing someone so close and so dear to you. Y'all, I'm going to be a bit vulnerable in this episode and let you in on some experiences in my own life, which is why I think I hold this particular story, this particular case, so close to my heart. And it's part of the reason it's the one case that baffles me so much because I can relate to Brian. When I was 24, I lost my mother unexpectedly and it shook me to my core. I can honestly tell you that after only three or four weeks, I was not okay. So I can definitely imagine how Brian and his family must have been feeling at this point in their lives. Anyway, as I said, Brian had plans to go out with a friend that night. But when his father called and needed someone to talk to, at least that's kind of what I inferred from his father's interview with Dateline on NBC. But when his father called, Brian dropped everything and went to have dinner with his dad. He told his friend that he would still meet up with him later, but not until after dinner with his father. According to the True Crime Garage podcast, Brian and Randy went to dinner at an East Side Steakhouse in Columbus. While at the dinner, apparently, Randy noticed Brian looked exhausted. He had been studying lately, like really hard for exams, most likely midterms around this time. And Randy just didn't think it was necessarily a good idea for Brian to go out when he was that stressed and exhausted. Like Randy just thought Brian, you know, needed to chill and rest for a bit, especially because Brian was about to go on a spring break trip to Miami with his girlfriend, Alexis, the next week. Side note, according to an episode of The Missing on Investigation Discovery, the trip to Miami was actually a Christmas present to Brian from his mom, Renee. So you can imagine how special it was. Anyway, even though Brian's father didn't think him going out that night was the best idea, Randy didn't voice his concern and instead just kept it to himself. I mean, Brian was a grown adult after all, and he could make his own choices. Plus, I can imagine that they were all just trying to cope and deal with their loss in their own ways. And I know for me, being around my friends and trying to get back to normal, such as going out, definitely helped me in my grief. Even though I wasn't completely myself, and my friends can for sure vouch for that, 
but being with them did give me some sort of comfort, at least. After dinner with his father, Brian met up with his friend, Clint Florence. According to NBC News, Brian and Clint were former roommates and drinking buddies, and the two friends basically had plans to go bar hopping, you know, stopping at each bar they came to for just one shot of liquor or one drink before moving on to the next bar for another shot or drink. Now, I am not judging Brian at all because, y'all, I used to love bar hopping with my friends. It's, to me, to me anyway, it's fun and exciting and it feels like you're going on a little adventure and there's always a change of pace and environment. So, again, definitely not judging him at all. But because they had been to several bars, that means that Brian had consumed a decent amount of alcohol on this night. Anyway, Clint told MSNBC that it was supposed to be just another night out for the two buddies. Their night started at about 9 or 9.30 p.m. at the Ugly Tuna Saluna, a bar near the Ohio State campus. Then, at around 10 p.m., Brian either received a call from his girlfriend, Alexis, or he, like, just called her at some point. So sources vary on that particular aspect. We know that at some point, he called and left Alexis a voicemail, because I've heard that voicemail, basically just telling her that he loves her and misses her and that she's gorgeous. I know, super sweet, right? (laughs) But according to an interview with Dateline on NBC, Alexis said they actually spoke on the phone. So I'm assuming at some point he either called her again after he left her that message or she called him back after he left her that message and then they spoke. Anyway, at the time, Alexis was visiting her family in Toledo for the weekend and she said that when she did speak with him that night, all seemed perfectly fine, perfectly normal, nothing out of the ordinary that she could tell. After that call with Alexis, Brian and Clint went on to some more bars for some more shots and drinks before meeting up with one of Clint friends, Meredith Reed, which was around midnight that night. And then the three of them headed back to the Ugly Tuna Saluna to end the night where they started. Sources say Meredith actually drove the three of them from the bar they were at back to the Ugly Tuna, where they parked in a parking garage. So, before I continue with the timeline, let me describe the area where the bar is located, because it will give you a little more context. The hosts of True Crime Garage actually live in Columbus, so they were able to give a good overall description of the area, since, you know, they know it best and see it firsthand. Apparently, the Ugly Tuna is located in an area called the South Campus Gateway, and it's on the block between 11th Avenue and Chittenden Avenue, I think is how you pronounce it, which is a tad south of the Ohio State campus. And it's not the best of neighborhoods. Well, at least it didn't used to be. When Brian went missing in 2006, it was right about the time that a development group called Campus Partners came into the area and basically began trying to clean it up. According to True Crime Garage, the area was very like grungy with some violence and crime. However, there were also a lot of bars around the area of 11th Avenue and they basically described it as a place where you could go see the best bands and listen to good live music. You just had to be aware of your surroundings at the same time. So it just wasn't very clean or overly safe is what it sounds like. Well, since this area was near campus, the development group, Campus Partners, came in to help clean it up and put in new modern establishments with restaurants and retail shops and bars, which would ultimately be a bigger draw and recruitment tool for Ohio State University since it was so close to campus. So it would make it safer to be by the campus, essentially. The Ugly Tuna, then, was one of these newer establishments that this development group put in. The building where the Ugly Tuna is located sits across from a giant parking garage with a courtyard separating the building and the garage. So people can park in the garage, then walk across the courtyard and into the building where the bar is located. 
Also, the bar is not the only establishment in the building. It's basically a business complex with other restaurants and retail shops in it as well. So when you first walk into the building from the street or the courtyard or the ground floor, there are several businesses on the ground floor beneath the ugly tuna. But there's also an escalator that leads up to the second floor, which is where the bar is located. So the bar basically sits atop the rest of the businesses beneath it. So if you're riding the escalator, it means you're either going to the bar or coming from the bar. And from what I understand, the Ugly Tuna is the only establishment on the second floor of the building. Now, in the bar, and this is very important, (laughs) so listen carefully. So in the bar, there was only one main entrance and exit for bar patrons, and that is the one the escalator leads to. It's really the only entrance and exit available to the general public. And this entrance and exit is covered by surveillance cameras. So anybody coming or going on the escalator can easily be seen and identified on those cameras. There's also a service entrance and exit for employees and band members and, you know, for other business purposes, I guess, toward the back. But that entrance is not widely known or made available to general patrons. Regardless, according to True Crime Garage and NBC News, that entrance, too, is covered by surveillance cameras. So the only possible way out that's not covered by cameras is or was at the time an emergency exit that actually led to a construction zone. However, usually that emergency exit would sound an alarm if someone chose to actually use it. According to NBC News, this particular exit was actually outside of the bar, but it was on the second floor, but not inside the ugly tuna. (laughs) So this particular exit is also out of camera view, and there are stairs and an elevator through the exit that lead to the first floor of the building. But once On the first floor from this exit, the only way out without being seen on tape would be through metal doors that immediately lead to a construction site, at least they did at the time. Not a place where someone could easily like walk through or navigate, meaning it would be hard to leave that way, if even doable at all. Sergeant Rick Thompson of the Columbus Division of Police told NBC News that it would be hard for a sober person to walk through that construction, let alone someone who had been drinking or was intoxicated. So now that we know the layout of the bar and surrounding area, let's go through the timeline of events leading up to Brian's disappearance. As I previously mentioned, Brian and Clint met up with Clint's friend, Meredith, who drove the three of them back to the Ugly Tuna Saluna. Surveillance footage shows all three of them, Brian, Clint, and Meredith, riding the escalator up to the bar at about 1.15 a.m. At this point, Brian does appear to be, I mean, maybe intoxicated because he's clearly like leaning heavily on the rail of of the escalator, but I don't know if he's doing that because he's tired or because he's, you know, like drunk and he needs help standing and balancing. But you can see him leaning heavily on the rail of the escalator as they are all three going up. Then at 1.55 a.m., so like 40 minutes later, Brian is seen again on the camera by the escalators, but this time he's just standing at the top of the escalator, like by the bar entrance, and he's talking to two college-aged females. Now, he doesn't talk to them for a long time, and after he does, he can be seen going off camera, which appears to be back toward the entrance of the bar. Once back inside, it's nearly 2 a.m., and the bar like closes at 2.30, and so last call is around 2 a.m., so that means the bar is closing soon. But Clint told police that he definitely saw Brian back inside around 1.55 a.m. after he had talked to those two girls, and he saw him step back into the bar. 
at 1.55 a.m. When Clint saw him, he said Brian told him something about going to talk to the band or going somewhere. He said he thinks he said he was going to talk to the band. That's where Clint assumed he went because after this, Clinton, Meredith, and everyone else for that matter, never saw Brian again. Like Clint just like lost him. Like he didn't see where he actually went. 10 minutes later, it was now 2.05 a.m. and the bar was seriously closing. And you know how when bars close, like people were like trying to make their way to the exits. And so Clint and Meredith, they, they're trying to go to the exit, but they can't find Brian anywhere. Clint tried to call Brian at 2.05 a.m., but at this point, his phone went straight to voicemail. Clint tried calling him a few more times, and when Brian didn't answer, Clint and Meredith began looking around for him, like even searching the bathrooms and anywhere else he might have gone in the bar, which didn't include a lot of options because the bar was just a big square. Surely, they would have seen him if he was still in the bar. And since they didn't see him, they assumed he must have somehow gotten past them, like through the crowd of people trying to leave, and then he must have just walked back home on his own. Brian only lived about six blocks from the bar. It wasn't that far-fetched of an assumption. But before they left, Meredith tried calling Brian one more time. At this point, getting a little annoyed, she left a voicemail saying, quote, where the hell are you? End quote. By 2.09 a.m., Clinton Meredith decided Brian must have left on his own. They began to exit the bar, and the two of them can be seen on surveillance footage, riding the escalator back down to the ground floor. And then, from my understanding, they can also be seen, like, in the parking garage, like, surveillance from the parking lo- garage shows them going to Meredith's car. The next day, on Saturday, April 1st, 2006, Brian's girlfriend, Alexis, tried calling him, but every time she did, his phone would go straight to voicemail. Clearly, Alexis was getting concerned, but not too concerned just yet because, I mean, she figured he must have had a long night of drinking with his buddies and he must be nursing a hangover from hell. But when Sunday rolled around the day Alexis started actually heading back to Columbus from Toledo, she became increasingly worried. Brian's phone was still off and she still couldn't get a hold of him. So she called Brian's dad, Randy, to fill him in on what was happening. Then when she got into town, Alexis went directly to Brian's apartment, still not thinking the worst, but also obviously concerned. Alexis assumed she would probably find Brian sleeping or resting in his apartment, like maybe he was sick or something. But when she got there, she realized Brian hadn't been home at all. Like his bed was made and it looked like it hadn't been slept in a couple of days and all of his belongings were still there. By this time, Alexis and Randy were both seriously worried and it was Sunday that Randy called Derek, his other son, to tell him that Brian was missing. At first, Derek thought Brian was simply tucked away at a friend's house, sleeping off the long weekend, or even that maybe Brian was playing a joke on them. I mean, it was April Fool's Day after all, but when Derek realized Brian left all of his stuff in his apartment and including his eyeglasses, Derek knew something was terribly wrong. The weekend came and went, and by Monday, Brian's family went from worried to full-on panic mode. Remember that flight Brian and Alexis were supposed to take for their spring break trip to Miami? Well, Brian never showed up to the airport. This, of course, sent chills up and down Alexis's spine. Not only was this an important trip for Brian because his mom had gifted it to him, but there was also speculation that Brian was going to propose to 
Alexis on this trip. They weren't for sure, but there was speculation. So there was no way he was going to miss it. So immediately after this, Alexis informed Randy that Brian never showed up to the airport and Randy quickly called police to report Brian officially missing. Then they all began frantically searching for Brian. They went through dumpster after dumpster in Columbus, particularly in the vicinity around the Ugly Tuna. They plastered flyers with Brian's face everywhere and police brought in search dogs to sniff out the area. They closed the bar down for a couple of days so police could extensively search the building and, you know, make sure Brian didn't pass out somewhere or fall and hit his head or be stuck or lost somewhere inside. They even brought in divers to search the Olentangy River just in case Brian might have wandered off toward the river, which was also very close to the area. But they did all this to no avail. They found absolutely nothing. No sign of Brian and no sign of foul play either. He was just gone. Hey, y'all. I want to take the time to tell you about a podcast I recently started listening to. It's called Ghost Town. And each week, actually twice each week on Mondays and Wednesdays, hosts Rebecca Lieb and Jason Horton bring you unique stories covering and exploring some of the most mysterious and interesting places on earth, like haunted hotels, abandoned malls, deserted amusement parks. Seriously, for some odd reason, deserted amusement parks both intrigue me and freak me the heck out. I mean, I love amusement amusement parks, but deserted ones? <laughs> but they also cover locations of infamous true crimes, weird history, and more. So go check out Ghost Town, available wherever you listen to podcasts. According to an article in the Columbus Dispatch by Mike Wagner, police interviewed hundreds of people and witnesses from that night, including bar staff and patrons and even the band members who were playing at the Ugly Tuna Saluna that night. But they got nothing, no pertinent or substantial information that would suggest anybody who was there had anything to do with Brian's disappearance. Police also reviewed thousands of hours of surveillance footage, not just from the Ugly Tuna, but from surrounding businesses as well. And here's the thing. They have no footage at all of Brian ever exiting the bar that night. And trust me, when I say they had tons and tons of camera footage to sort through, I'm not exaggerating. According to several sources, that area near campus has a lot of surveillance among the businesses since it has been known for high crime. So to recap, they have Brian and Clint on camera coming in the first time, you know, to the ugly tuna the first time, riding the escalator around 9, 9.15 p.m. They have them leaving the first time, heading back down the escalator as they made their way to other bars in the area. Then they can see Brian, Clint, and Meredith all coming back up the escalator at 1.15 a.m. when they went back to the Ugly Tuna to wrap up the night. And they even have footage of Clint and Meredith leaving at 2.09 a.m. for the final time that night. But they don't have any footage of Brian leaving from any camera in the Ugly Tuna at all. In fact, they don't have Brian on camera at all after 1.55 a.m. when he was seen talking to those two females just outside of the bar. They don't even have footage of Brian from other businesses in the area. Again, like I said, it's like he just disappeared. Alexis told NBC News that for weeks after Brian disappeared, she would go to his apartment every day and just wait for him, hoping and praying he'd come home. She'd lie on his bed and sob. She also called his phone every night before she went to sleep, and every night it would go directly to his voicemail. It was her way of, you know, coping and grieving Brian's disappearance. She did this every single night 
right for months until one day in September of 2006, something happened that made her heart jump through her throat and she was overwhelmed with hope. Instead of Brian's phone going straight to voicemail, it rang three whole times. Naturally, Alexis bolted into action and informed police of this very hopeful news. She really thought he could be alive, as did Brian's brother and father. But when police reached out to Singular Wireless, Brian's cell phone provider, they dug into it and were able to explain it away. And no, it didn't necessarily mean that Brian's phone, even for a split second, was turned on. According to an episode of The Missing on ID, as well as several other sources, Singular informed police that the phone had pinged off a tower in Hilliard, Ohio, a town outside of Columbus. I think they said it was like 14 miles or 13 miles outside of Columbus. But that the reason it pinged was most likely due to a glitch in the system. They said that most likely the local cell tower that Brian's phone normally used was like overrun and had a lot of activity on it. So it then bounced to the next available tower, the one in Hilliard, which explains the three rings while it was bouncing from one tower to the other, almost like it was searching for a signal. Then when the signal reached the other tower, it registered that the phone was not serviceable or it was turned off, which is why it just stopped after those three rings. So (laughs) that's a long explanation for saying that it was just a fluke of a chance that his phone just happened to ring on that one day because of a glitch in the cell towers. A year came and went and police still had no answers. Brian's phone, his keys, his wallet, clothes he was wearing that day, none of it had ever been found. Also, no activity was on any of his credit cards or bank accounts or anything. It's like nothing. Like there was just nothing left. Also, since they were the last ones to see Brian that night, police asked Randy, Brian's father, as well as Clint and Meredith to take polygraphs regarding the circumstances of that night. According to The Lantern, the newspaper at The Ohio State University, and under his attorney's advisement, Clint refused to take the polygraph. Now, I know that sounds a bit sketch, but as we all know in the true crime world, that they aren't necessarily reliable and they aren't admissible in court. So, someone refusing to take one isn't necessarily anything new, but it's still odd that he wouldn't want to take a polygraph to help his missing friend. Like, to me, that's the least you could do, you know? And even Derek Schaefer, Brian's brother, openly said that he finds it odd that Clint wouldn't take a polygraph because it could possibly help generate a lead, and he doesn't understand why Clint wouldn't want to do that for his longtime friend. Apparently, Clint was very cooperative in police's initial investigation. He answered their questions and provided as much information as he knew. But when they asked him to take a polygraph, he found a lawyer and shut down. In 2009, Derek told the lantern, quote, as soon as the detectives started getting involved, that's when he, as in Clint, pretty much had no contact with anybody. I've always thought he definitely knows something, just won't come forward with it. If Brian did take off somewhere, if that is the case, we just always had a strong feeling that Clint would possibly know that, end quote. Also, according to the lantern, Clint said he was more than willing to help with the investigation and answer questions, but he would only do it through his attorney. But at the same time, his attorney said that as far as he was concerned, the case was closed and the attorney himself declined to answer any further questions. He specifically stated in an email he sent to the Schaefer family's private investigator, quote, the only burning issue with the authorities remains Clint's refusal to be polygraphed. That decision was based on my recommendation and advice to Clint, not because he is, has been misleading or has something to hide, but that he simply has nothing new to tell and was totally upfront and honest with them from the beginning. As far as Clint is concerned, this matter is closed, end quote. 
Also, according to the missing on investigation discovery, police later discovered somewhere along the way that Clint and Brian had actually gotten to some sort of like an argument or tiff in the bar that night. Now, I don't know much more than that, so I'm not sure if it's even relevant or significant or not. I mean, friends get into disputes all the time, and we have no idea how big of a deal it was, especially since they were drinking. Plus, since Meredith was there, she would have known something about it. And remember, she did take a polygraph and pass. So I can't imagine the argument was too significant to the case, but it happened nonetheless. Anyway, continuing with the story. Y'all, as if this family hadn't already been through enough, but Randy Schaefer, Brian's father, died in a freak accident in September 2008. According to the Columbus Dispatch, a severe windstorm hit Ohio and Randy was out working in his yard, like picking up limbs and debris from the storm, when a large branch from a tree fell on top of him and killed him. Poor Derek Schaefer. He he has now lost all of his immediate family. His mother died from cancer, his brother mysteriously disappeared with no trace in sight, and then his father died in a freak tragic accident. I honestly don't understand how he bears that much emotional trauma and so my heart just pours out to him. I mean, I've only lost my mom and I was a big ball of mess. So I can't imagine losing my whole family in less than two years. But Randy's passing actually generated another spark of hope for Derek and Alexis too. You see, the Columbus Dispatch published Randy's obituary with a link to an online guest book where people could post condolences and messages for the family. But one of those posts stood out among the rest because it appeared to be from Brian himself. There was one short post that read, quote, Dad, I love you, Brian. And then in parentheses, it said USVI or United States Virgin Islands. So as you can all probably gather, now everybody thought that he was in the Virgin Islands. This post was quickly brought to the attention of police who tracked down the legitimacy of the post. They ended up discovering that it originated from an IP address from a public computer in the Franklin County area, which is Columbus, Ohio. Unfortunately, they couldn't link it to a specific identity of a person, but they could determine it was a hoax. Y'all, people can be such cruel assholes sometimes. This April will be 16 years since Brian disappeared, and still to this day, his case is considered cold, and police have zero leads or information that could push it forward, at least not at this point. It's just so, so baffling, because there are so many possibilities, yet also so few at the same time, of what could have happened to Brian. Regardless, for many detectives working Brian's case, it's one of the most haunting investigations they've ever done. One of them, the lead investigator, Sergeant John Hurst, told investigators, discovery that they literally left no stone unturned. And from all the research I've done on this case, I firmly believe that. In an interview with Mike Wagner for the Columbus Dispatch, Hurst explained how all the dead ends left police with more questions than answered because they followed every single lead and tip they got. They had tips come in from numerous states throughout the country and even other countries as well, including Sweden and Jamaica and Mexico. In 2010, 10 years after Brian's disappearance, reporter Mike Wagner asked Hurst straight up, is Brian alive? Hurst said, quote, there is a possibility he is alive, but if you look at the probabilities that he isn't alive, those are just as great, end quote. Then Wagner asked him, was he murdered? Hurst replied, 
quote, there's nothing we have been able to recover that shows he succumbed to foul play. So again, the probability of that isn't as great as he just walked away, end quote. Finally, Wagner asked him, did Brian take his own life? And Hearst said, quote, most people who commit suicide want to be found. I would say that is probably in the lower category, end quote. But here's the thing. After all the research I've done, reading through tons of articles and websites, watching interviews and documentaries, listening to several podcasts, because yeah, if you can't tell, I'm quite obsessed with this case. But I believe that they, the Columbus Division of Police, believe Brian not only got out of the bar that night somehow, but that he could, by some chance, be alive. I say this because Sergeant Hurst said in another interview that he would look for Brian everywhere he went in the months and years following his disappearance, going up to people and strangers who he thought could have been Brian to get a better look. There was one instance he specifically recalled where he was working traffic for an Ohio State football game. He saw a car go by and he could have sworn Brian was in that car. So he literally took off on foot, chasing the car down up to a quarter of a mile away. When he got to the car though, well, it was no wonder he thought it was Brian because it was actually Brian's brother, Derek. I don't know about you, but that story gave me chills. And at the same time, it made me understand just how much the detectives were doing to try and find Brian or solve the case. The most recent news regarding Brian's case came last year in March of 2001. And this is even more reason for me to believe that they think Brian could still be out there somewhere because the Ohio Bureau of Criminal Investigation released an age progression photo of Brian. He was 27 when he disappeared and the photo shows what he would likely look like at 42, 15 years later. I'll be sure to post that photo to my social media so y'all can see it. Okay, before I wrap up, I want to talk about some of the most common theories that have been talked around regarding Brian's disappearance. But remember, at this point, police and Brian's family still have no idea exactly what happened. So that's literally all these are, theories of what could have happened. The first thing authorities had to decipher was if Brian left willingly, purposefully, or by force from someone inside the bar. The idea that he met with foul play inside the bar was thrown out pretty quickly because, as I said, they did their due diligence and searched that bar high and low. They found absolutely no evidence that something sinister happened to Brian inside the bar. That means Brian most likely left the bar on his own and somehow managed to completely evade any and all surveillance cameras in the vicinity. So the theories I'm going to share all stem from the idea that Brian left the bar willingly or purposefully. One of the most common theories is that somehow Brian, being intoxicated on his own because he missed his ride, went through that emergency exit the only exit not covered by cameras, and perhaps he fell into a hole or somewhere in that construction zone. Because remember, that exit directly opened up into that construction. Then when construction crews came to work, well, you get the picture. People speculate that he went unnoticed somehow and then was buried in that construction zone. But I mean, come on, how likely is it really that construction crews would not notice him? To me, that's pretty far-fetched. Not completely out of the question, but 
pretty far-fetched. Another theory is that Brian willingly left the bar on his own volition, either through that emergency exit or he somehow slipped by the cameras through the crowd of people leaving through the main exit. And then after he left, he was met with foul play on his way home. A lot of sources say he could have been an easy target to like mug or rob or even snatch away since he was intoxicated. But I mean, Brian looked like a pretty fit guy. He stood six feet, two inches tall and weighed about 165 to 170 pounds. And if he met with some sort of foul play after he left the bar, something, anything would have likely shown up on at least one surveillance camera in the area. And well, we know that Brian could not be seen on even one camera after 1.55 a.m. An alternative ending to this particular theory is that Brian somehow got turned around while he was walking the six blocks to his apartment and then instead walked the opposite direction toward the Olentangy River. You see, the river is very close to the area as well, and it's been speculated that Brian somehow either fell in or even jumped in and then drowned. But that river was searched extensively, numerous times by both Brian's own father and brother on their own boat, as well as dive teams the authorities brought in. And Brian's body, or any trace of Brian for that matter, was never found in that river. So this theory is unlikely. The most interesting theory though, to me, is the possibility that Brian could have left purposefully, as in he left to start a new life and it was all part of a big grand plan. I know it seems a bit far-fetched, but hear me out. So we know Brian was grieving over his mother's passing and he told some things to Alexis before his disappearance that could be evidence that he wasn't dealing with it well. A few days before April 1st, 2006, you know, the morning he went missing, he told Alexis to move on and find someone else because he was struggling so much with his mom's death. And a couple of weeks before that, he asked her to, quote, just go away with him, end quote. So is it possible that Brian walked away to start a new life? Apparently being a doctor was more of a backup career to his real passion, which is music. Brian loved the band Pearl Jam, and he even has a Pearl Jam stick figure symbol tattooed on his upper right arm. Brian also had a guitar and loved to play it. The only reason he wanted to become a doctor was because he was inspired by his mother. And when she passed, many people speculated that Brian couldn't take the grief on top of the stress of med school and pressure of proposing to Alexis, so perhaps he left to begin something new. This could, this particular theory, could also explain why Clint was so secretive or not willing to take a polygraph. People speculate that Clint could have helped him disappear and that's the reason he didn't take the polygraph test, even though police asked him on more than one occasion to do so. Plus, both Derek and Alexis believe Clint knows more than he lets on. Derek Schaefer told the Columbus Dispatch, quote, If I saw him, I'd say, where the hell is my brother? If anyone knows whether he is still alive or if something happened to him, it's Clint. End quote. Alexis, too, told The Lantern that she thinks Clint isn't being forthcoming. Even Alexis's father, Tom Wagner, said, quote, The gist of my perspective on Clint Florence is that I think that basically all roads to making any progress on the case on Brian Schaefer lead through Clint Florence. End quote. However, Alexis said, quote, I don't think he's alive. I can't imagine he would have just done that. 
end quote, as in up and walk out of his life. But on the other hand, Brian leaving to start a new life could also help explain how and or even why he was able to exit the bar without being seen on surveillance footage. According to several sources, police were able to account for and identify every single person who came into the bar that night and left the bar that night. They were able to identify every person except for Brian. But what does that mean? Well, it means he either left through the one exit with no cameras, right? And then somehow evaded cameras outside, or he was able to change his appearance enough for police to just miss him. All it would take is that he changed his shirt or put on a hat or something that would alter his appearance from what he looked like when he entered the bar. The only thing that refutes this though is that police were thorough. They even noticed that one guy who left was wearing an orange sweatshirt or sweater, but a person wearing that same sweater or sweatshirt never came into the bar. So they were like, uh, how'd this guy get out if he never came in? So they ended up tracking the guy down and he confirmed that he got cold inside the bar and he put on the sweater before he left. Like he had the sweater with him and he just put it on before he left. So who's to say that Brian didn't do something similar? But again, if they were that thorough, I can't imagine that investigators would miss something like that on surveillance if Brian did alter his appearance in some way. Nobody can say for certain what exactly happened to Brian Schaefer on April 1st, 2006. So we are left with the conundrum of which improbable theory is the most probable. Because honestly, none of the theories are satisfying, to say the least. And I truly hope we eventually find some sort of an answer. At the time of Brian's disappearance, he stood 6 feet 2 inches tall and weighed about 165 to 170 pounds. He is a white male with light brown hair and hazel eyes. The day he went missing, he was wearing an olive green short-sleeved polo shirt with a white long-sleeved shirt underneath. He was wearing blue jeans, white Adidas sneakers, and a yellow cancer awareness bracelet. He also has a black spot on his left iris that would be quite noticeable and a pearl gem symbol tattooed on his right upper arm. He also wears wire-framed glasses. Today, Brian would be 43 years old. If you have any information at all regarding the case of Brian Schaefer, please call the Columbus Police Department at 614-645-4545 or 877 877- 6458477 again those numbers are 6146454545 or 8776458477 Before I officially wrap up the episode, I want to end by talking a little bit more about Brian's loved ones, his brother Derek and Brian's previous girlfriend Alexis, and where they are now. Alexis said Brian's disappearance absolutely consumed her for quite some time. She spent months posting flyers, she'd walk the riverbanks of the Olentangy River at night, and during the day she'd walk the neighborhoods looking for any signs of him in trash dumpsters, under bridges. She even called his cell phone relentlessly for a whole year. But eventually, she knew she needed to put it behind her and try to move on. It was the only thing she could do. So she packed away t-shirts and all the things that reminded her of Brian. She told the Columbus Dispatch, quote, I put his things in the back of my closet and I just needed that chapter of my life to be over. There were a lot of tears and it was sad, but it was time to move forward. 
end quote. Alexis went on to graduate medical school and she now works as a practicing OBGYN. She also got married in 2009 and she and her husband have two sons. Derek Schaefer, Brian's younger brother, married his high school sweetheart, Morin, in 2009 as well. As of 2016, Derek and Morin had a two-year-old son, which means Brian is now an uncle. Okay, y'all, that officially brings us to the end of Chronicle 25. As always, be sure to check out this podcast on social media where I always post photos associated with each case and episode. You can find me at Campus Crime Podcast on Instagram and Campus Crime Chronicles on Facebook. Or if you want to request a specific case or story or just reach out and say hi, you can always email me at campuscrimepodcast at gmail.com. Okay, well, that's all for today. So bye for now. This episode of Campus Crime Chronicles was researched, written, and recorded by me, Nicole Turner, and I'm proud to say that it was edited and produced by one of my former students, Giari Gassaway. Tune in again in two weeks for the next Chronicle. Ready for a career in behavioral health? Earn your online degree at Herzing University. Choose from health and human services, psychology, or social work programs. Gain the skills to work, coordinate, and manage nonprofits. Secure a bachelor's in psychology to study mental health or advance your social work career through our online master's of social work. Let us help you become a social change agent. Your future starts now at Herzing University. Text HEALTH to 85109. That's HEALTH to 85109. Or visit herzing.edu.